Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the main event. It's Chairman Powell in his first semi-annual testimony. Deutsche Bank's Alan Ruskin saying the following, and I love this quote. When a new sheriff comes to town, what does he do? If things have been unruly, he asserts himself and shows who's boss. If the old regime was largely peaceful, successful, he follows the old sheriff's protocols. So is it time to follow the old sheriff's protocols? Let's ask Brian Levitt, shall we? Oppenheimer Fund's senior investment strategist. Brian, always great to catch up with you. Is that what today's about, keeping the peace and not saying too much? Yes, that's what today is about. And this is a Federal Reserve who's going to be gradually raising interest rates. But you'll hear things like data dependent and you know the expectation of continued improvements in the U.S. economy and, and rising inflation expectations, which is all good news for the equity markets and good news for for households. But um, remember, the Federal Reserve is still looking at their preferred measure of inflation, which is uh, below their comfort zone. And, and so we have some time here. I think that investors shouldn't get too concerned that this tightening cycle um, is going to curtail this cycle anytime soon. There is some excitement out there, Brian, about the prospect of moving from three hikes to four. Why on earth would the new chairman Jerome Powell come in and make that move to communicate to the market this early. <laughs> he would not. And and I got to be honest with you, I don't see why why anybody would um, want to set forth and say we're going to have four interest rate hikes uh, in the coming year. Remember the last, or in this year, the last time we did that, uh, I believe was in late 2015, early 2016, Stanley Fisher was, was um, signaling four interest rate hikes in the year ahead, and the dollar rallied substantially. So the Fed wants to be cautious on this. The good news is this is not late 2015. Growth outside the United States looks a lot lot better yeah. than it did in late 2015. So we don't need to see the dollar rally significantly on the back of interest rate hikes. But if the Fed gets too tight, they could flatten the yield curve and, and increase the dollar. So I don't. we're not going to hear four interest rate hikes this year. We're going to hear you know, gradual rise in rates, but it'll be data dependent at each meeting. So another question that overhangs the new leadership of the Federal Reserve is how willing he may be to allow for an inflation overshoot. Big conversation about that, Brian, going into this. Um, do you think this Federal Reserve is willing to accommodate an inflation overshoot? Well, I suspect that this this Federal Reserve is going to be willing to allow inflation above 2% for a, a period of time. That doesn't mean high and rising inflation. Like there's a, there's a level where high and rising inflation is detrimental to businesses and the equity market. But when you're coming out of a... a a deflationary scare in 2008, a deflationary scare in 2015 and 2016, the last thing you want to do is mm. harm the first time you see any real hints of inflation. Brian Lovett with us with Oppenheimer Funds. Good morning, everyone. John Farrow and Tom Keen, huge news flow this morning. Just just, just stunning what we had to deal with <laughs> early in the morning, and we're going to do a lot on that, particularly this this amazing British merger of Sky TV. And of course, we're hugely advantaged to have John Farrell uh, with us. Who's, uh, do you watch a lot of Sky, John? In, like, I, I used childhood? to watch a lot of Sky. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. Fantastic platform. Brian Levitt with us. And you know what's interesting, and I mentioned this yesterday, a chart by Dean Baker of CEPR showing inflation and in taking out shelter. 
and there's still no inflation right. when you take out shelter. <laughs> this sort of reminds me of Janet Yellen and cell phones, where she's going to be, he's going to be in a press conference, and they're going to go raise, 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 raise. He's going to go, yeah, X shelter, but. There's a lot of yeah buts when he goes to his first press conference. Well, sure, but if I mean there are there are going to be some components of inflation, some things that we purchase going up in price, but the the aggregate numbers are still. I mean, we look at a lot of things that we consume. We are the beneficiaries of as consumers as lower cost labor around the world, um, automation, uh, th- things that are bringing the the price of a lot of our goods down so we do and we and we have not seen the substantial credit growth that usually leads to a significant amount of money chasing too few goods should we do a chart for bloomberg radio john Charts works so well on radio so great on radio (laughs) you should do it john 2013 two percent cleveland cpi my favorite number i know it is up to 2.60 percent early this year off a cliff and it's rebounded about two-thirds. But the Cleveland CPI hasn't broken out yet. Granted, the vectors in the Powell-like, you know, one, two, three, four rate increase direction, but we're not there yet. And core PCE isn't there yet either, Brian. So it just makes you wonder what the thinking is over at the Federal Reserve. Now, I know it started to improve recently, at least in terms of how they would view things. But quite obviously to a lot of people, the bias has been to hike, regardless of the data, even though they tell us they're data dependent. Um, Can you give me some insight as to why? I think that people believe that they're that were the economy's doing better. The patient is, you know, out of the emergency room, and there's no reason to a lot of people to have this type of ongoing support for the economy. What I would counter with that is, you know, we've gone through the deleveraging process. The economy is is doing well, but. The last thing you want to do is curtail the cycle unnecessarily when more households are are participating in the economic expansion and there's still more people left to come into the equity markets. Yeah. I also think one of the concerns, Jonathan, is that we have never seen stimulus to this extent this late in the cycle on the fiscal side. So you know, those that grew up in the late 70s and early 80s have this fear that we could get back to the environment where inflation gets out of hand. I would counter that by saying uh, we are a long ways away from what we saw in the late 70s and the early 1980s. This raises a really important theme that Steve Englander over at Rafiki has been uh, running some research about recently. It's how does the Federal Reserve communicate that it's leaning against the policy goals of this administration (laughs) by having tighter monetary policy because you're getting looser fiscal in the nation's capital. So now it's a serious question. How on earth does the Federal Reserve communicate that effectively what it's going to be doing is leaning against the policy goals of this administration? Yeah, and we do have an independent central bank, and and I hope that we continue to have an independent central bank. And and so the point is the the administration and Congress are going to be stepping on the gas pedal at the time that the Fed's going to be stepping on the break. Yeah. So what you get in the States is a bounce between expansion and slowdown. And I, in my opinion, that's fine for markets, but I think markets will outperform right. when you have recovery and expansion. That's the international and emerging markets. Brian Levitt, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Oppenheimer Funds. And now, and particularly after our discussion yesterday with Senator Portman of Ohio, 
I'm going to try to get away from the drone of the different issues of Washington, and I can do that nicely with Margaret Talev. She's our senior White House correspondent. Uh, Loads and loads of perspective here on the history of the White House and on the temperament of the White House in this fractious February into March of 2018. Margaret, there's a paragraph off of Laura Litvin's work where the president had a private lunch Sunday with Wayne LaPierre of the NRA and their top lobbyist, Christopher Cox. He's spoken with Paul Ryan. He's spoken with Mitch McConnell. And there's going to be a bipartisan lawmakers meeting tomorrow with the president. What is he going to say to them or how is he going to listen to them? I mean, it is really the most important question right now when you think about the prospects of uh, having any legislation or change come out of this tragedy. And so far, the reaction from Capitol Hill is that the president has been a little bit all over the map. On the one hand, he and his top aides have said they have a sense of urgency. There is a moment here. There is a window. They want something to be done. And then on the other hand, they have not yet come forward with specific asks. This is what we want in the plan. This is what we don't. And he's thrown out things like arming teachers or whatever that are, uh, you know, lightning rods, not going to happen at the federal legislative level. And so a lot of lawmakers in the Republican Party are now either waiting for guidance if they're in the camp that wants something to be done or are not waiting for guidance and think very little is going to be done. And uh, and Democrats are in an interesting position because while the you know overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party, right. uh, it, when they go home to their constituencies, say they want this, there are an important handful of Democratic lawmakers, particularly in the Senate, particularly in tight races this year, who don't necessarily want to be having test votes on something unless it's actually going to happen. You know, well, Margaret, what I find so important here, and you've got a lot more perspective at watching paint dry than I do is the advantage here for the entrenched Republicans is to let time go by and that time will slip by and we'll move on. Is that the arch presidential strategy? Well, if that's what the president is trying to accomplish, that's certainly always true. But I really am hearing from inside the White House that the president does want to get things done. The question are, what does he want to get done and how does he want to get it done? And in my conversations last night, there seems to be a strategy emerging with the White House where they would they believe that it makes sense to do this in waves. That if you do sort of an omnibus gun control package, there's too many constituencies who will be against too many little parts and the whole thing will fall apart. So they want to do this low hanging fruit first, this six nicks um, thing. And then they want to come back with school safety grants and then kind of come back and try another wave. It looks like one of the immediate casualties to all of this is the prospect of raising the age on these assault you know, weapons are right. Why is that? I had three people yesterday ask me the why of that. Not that I have any yeah. unique wisdom on this, but let's parse and whatever the gun is, an AR-15, AK, whatever the gun is that, that, that creates this horror. What's the difference between 16, 18, 21, 25 hike? I, I think the simple answer, and there really are no simple answers in gun control, is that this is a crucial issue for the lobby, and that it is an issue that um, lawmakers, either who believe in this ideologically or who face you know, primary challenges, don't want to fight out. But even the White House, when I talk to officials in the White House, they, well, they kind of sigh when you say, well, what are the prospects for raising the age? They say there seems to be a different... Um, uh, gut instinct or reaction yeah. on whether a little bit more can be done on background checks. Uh, the bump stock thing seems to be easier, but uh, you know whether this goes to uh, gun right. sales or the right to bear arms, it is like it's an obvious question. It's, if you can regulate 
um, you know, alcohol yeah. use. Why can't you regulate the age of having a gun? But exactly. I mean, I mean, you, you know, you're, Margaret, you're way too young to remember when they took the drinking age from 18 up to 21. <laughs> and, you know, we had guys literally dying in wars in Asia while we were raising the drinking age, which nobody right. really could figure out. I, I you're sweet. I'm not that young. I just missed the cut. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I didn't miss the cut. I was living it. And it was uh, sporting to say at the least. Margaret Talev, when we look at all this, You'd think conversations would be engaged. I tried to do that yesterday from the junior senator from Ohio, Rob Portman, the senator from Cincinnati. We talked about Holland, Ohio, on the border with Michigan and about he has a constituency with a real agricultural fabric and they believe in an NRA of a different time and place. Is the president engaging the Rob Portmans of the Republican Party? Uh, the president does not seem to have decided precisely what he wants to ask for yet. And what we do know is that he's engaged the NRAs of, of the world. He's and talking so to the K Street crew. When, well, the starting point so far has, in terms of those behind door discussions, has been basically what can I get without too much of a fight? Could we start there? If he wants to get something big done, he's going to okay. need to flip the switch, but he seems to have decided for now that getting right. a few smaller things done in pieces may be more effective than getting right. a big thing done. Margaret, to shift gears here in the final few minutes we have with you um, this morning, there seems to be a great curiosity within the zeitgeist and certainly within my messaging and email from listeners over the future of the two generals, General Kelly and General McMaster. Do you lump them together or are those two separate conversations for the president for Mr. Kushner and others within the White House? Well, they've always been really different figures. I mean, McMaster came in as kind of a caretaker after uh, the Mike Flynn debacle to stabilize things, but things with he and and the president were always a little bit uneasy. McMaster, you know, like, has a different kind of style and has been more of a facilitator. Kelly is this uh, guy who he and President Trump were sort of forged in the crucible of the immigration fight. And he's like a, you know, like a manly man, like get in there and get stuff done. And, and he had that sort of the generals with the capital G thing that President Trump yeah. viscerally responds to, but then of course became competitive with almost instantly. You could like see that coming three miles away. So in, in their, uh, in, in, in their manner, they're completely different. In the type of ways in which they interact, they're completely different. The one thing they have in common is that they are uh, sometimes chafe at one another and that President Trump has had tensions with them both. I do see them separate in terms of the specific calculus. McMaster's job, is, by design, is more of a facilitator job. The chief of staff's job, particularly when you have a president without real political experience, is uh, much more kind of uh, one of channeling, you know, power and decision making. So, uh, but they do both speak to yeah. kind of that push and pull about President Trump's desire to have competent leadership versus President Trump's desire to have the flexibility to pivot when he wants to. Thank you so much. I could go to the tweets of the president today, but we'll leave it at that. Margaret <laughs> Taleb has been more than generous uh, with her time. Our senior White House uh, correspondent. interview of the day on Sky, Craig Moffat of Moffat uh, Nathanson, Mr. Years writing black books at Sanford Bernstein. Craig, I want to cut to the chase. U.S. satellites doesn't work. Sky satellites. What's Comcast getting themselves into with satellites? 
Yeah. Good morning, Tom. You know, uh, look, I think that's going to be the question of the day, and I think that Comcast investors are going to be scratching their heads over this um, for a while, irrespective of whether they actually win the bidding here or whether Disney comes in and tops it. Right. You know, when satellite has been proven to already be an obsolete technology in the U.S. and and starting to go into freefall, why in heaven's name is Comcast saying we want? a piece of that in Europe um, before that same uh, evolution takes place. Within this is the profitability. I looked at the Bloomberg quickly, and it looks like Comcast is way more profitable than Sky. Can they move the needle down the income statement on Emerge Sky TV? Not clear why. I, I mean, you know, I, Comcast is a good operator, but it's not clear that that Sky is not a good operator. So, um, so I'm I'm not sure that there's some missing magic sauce that Comcast okay. is going to bring to Fair. the table. Yeah. Well, explain to us, uh, Craig, why then AT&T in their uh, DirecTV uh, operations, uh, is that not uh, successful? And uh, I thought that people were cutting the cord. People are cutting the cord, and that's the problem for AT&T and DirecTV. I mean, look, DirecTV, um, they bought DirecTV, what, two and a half years ago for eight times EBITDA. Um, two and a half years later, EBITDA is growing at negative 11% at DirecTV. Subscribership is starting to fall pretty rapidly. Subscribership for Dish Network is falling at almost 10% a year, and their EBITDA is falling by 25 um, yeah. Why in heaven's name, again, would you want to own a piece of that? When you look, and your colleague in crime, Michael Nathanson, when the two of you look, and folks, generally Moffitt's hardware, wireless, Comcast, and Nathanson does touchy-feely. He gets to go to the movie openings. And, and <laughs> when right. you look, I get pieces of wire. Exactly. Craig, you get to go to conventions about plumbing and pipes. Um, Craig, when the two of you got together on this, to me and Pim, it started with AT&T Time Warner. Let's back up. Why are we having a mating of everyone and all in media? Um, well, the first the first thing I would say is it's not entirely clear that we are. Um, but let's go back into the, the dark ages for a second. Um, when there were a set of rules passed way back in, in 1992 in, uh, in the uh, in the Cable Act, that that created a a prohibition carried through the 1996 Telecom Act that created a prohibition uh, for vertically integrated um, uh, operators against um, withholding content from their competitors. Those were called the program access rules or the exclusivity provisions of the program access rules. In, in layman's terms, simple language, they kept it, they, they, they made sure that if you were a distributor that also owned content, that you couldn't uh, exercise um, undue market power by withholding that content from, say, a satellite operator and right. keeping them from being able to compete. When those rules sunset, there was back in 2009. There was some speculation that that the the doors had been thrown open to vertical integration, and that new strategies that would effectively work around content exclusivity um, were made possible. Um, and that may still be true. Um, you know, Comcast agreed to provisions that would um, that would prohibit that kind of behavior for the first seven years. Well, those seven years expire. Um, sorry, right. uh, ten years. Those those ten years expire in in oh. June uh, in uh, March. I mean, so next month you're going to get to find uh, out 
um, whether Comcast can do some of those kinds of things. Yeah. AT&T may be able to do some of those same kind of things, okay. too. And if so, you could see more of with, these types of deals. Craig Moffat, with the time that we've got left with you, is Mr. Robertson a bidding war? I mean, this is all the dust going to settle. And the whole, you know, I did an extrapolation chart, which I can send, and you could give me your royalty at Moffat Nathanson. But I did a log <laughs> extrapolation chart. We're right on extrapolation. And by definition, it's got to go for one or two standard deviations above the eight-year trend. That tells me bidding war. Is that what you guys see here? Yeah, look, I, I think um, Disney will have to come back um, and decide what it wants to do here. The market's already anticipating that there will be a higher bid. Um, I think the real question here is, is this a prelude to a Comcast bid for the rest of the same Fox assets in the U.S. that Disney is trying to buy? And th- this doesn't preclude that in any way. And they were on their conference call. They were pretty clear that um, that they aren't ruling that out. They didn't want to talk about it. And so, if the judge in the Comcast or in the Time Warner AT and T case approves the vertical integration of AT and T and Time Warner, then the regulatory door is open for Comcast to then try to buy Fox, okay. and you can see a bidding war for the rest of Fox. That a lot hinges on what happens in that AT and T Time Warner trial. We'll have much more to say, I'm sure. Craig Moffat, thank you so much on short notice, Moffat Nathanson. If you have been taken by the news out of China, this is without question not only the interview of the day, but the interview of the week. On short notice, I'm absolutely thrilled to bring to you Stephen Sang, out of Oxford, now at the University of London in their wonderful School of Oriental and African Studies, S-O-A-S. Dr. Sang is absolutely definitive. His one volume on Hong Kong is heartbreaking at its end when Chris Patton hands over the keys to the Chinese. Dr. Sang, wonderful to have you with us this morning. Were you surprised by the dictatorship or the extension of President Xi's term? I was surprised that he would push it for the extension of the potential extension for his term of office as state president. I was surprised because it is unnecessary. The state presidency is a ceremonial position. It's not an office with real power. And the office of real power is being general secretary of the Communist Party of China, There is no limit to how many terms he can serve as general secretary. So it is not necessary for Xi Jinping to extend his um, potential for him to stay on as state president, knowing full well that there will be significant uh, discomfort within the Communist Party and the population at large. And yet he pressed for that. Within this is the divide between President Xi's activities foreign and the power play domestically. Does this set him up more for foreign advancement with his relation with other nations, or does it have a stronger domestic component? I think it's a strong component of vanity more than anything else. The only difference, whether he stays on as state president in 2023 or not, is whether he can have 
formal state visits when he travels overseas. As the leader of China, holding the office of General Secretaryship of the Communist Party, he will be treated as the leader of China wherever he goes. And he will be able to have summit meetings. He just cannot have state mm-hmm. to state, uh, formal state visits. Uh, and that is the only difference. Dr. Singh, I went back and looked at an interview I did on September 14th of 2004, 14 years ago, with the acclaimed Marshall Goldman, who at the time was in Moscow. And really, it was one of those days where he realized and others realized that Mr. Putin was going to do a power play and maintain his decades-long influence. Did we see a Putin equivalency yesterday and Sunday? Did we see did we see President Xi try to get the power that we have perceived out of Mr. Putin over the last decade? I think we saw confirmation over the weekend rather than the indication. He made that indication back at the 19th Party Congress last October when he broke with the convention after Mao Zedong in not allowing a successor to him to be named at the 19th Party Congress, which would have been the Constitutional Mm -hmm. Convention. Um, What he did over the weekend was to confirm that this is indeed his intention to do so, and he will do so not only by holding power, but holding on to the three top officers that he holds currently right. at his own pleasure. Your magisterial, A Modern History of Hong Kong, which, folks, it was my book of the year uh, too long ago in Stephen Yang's younger days. Dr. Sang, you end it with a chapter, Building a New Kitchen. How's the building of the new kitchen going in China and, for that matter, in Hong Kong? Well, the new kitchens that Chris Patton built in Hong Kong just before 1997 was completely dismantled. And so that is now gone, and Hong Kong is increasingly under pressure from the Chinese government to toe the line. And this will continue even further under Xi Jinping. Now, in terms of what's happening in China, I think what is disconcerting most is that the way what the way how Xi Jinping is uh, managing things means that he is reducing the scope for internal debates before policies are being made. Mm-hmm. China has a very unusual system compared to ours. Both the American and the British systems can deal with muttering through. We can deal with leaders who are not particularly fit for office, because the system will limit what damage they can do. China has a system that requires the Communist Party and its leader to get its policies right nearly all the time in order to, to, in right. order to right, right. deliver a better tomorrow for everybody today. Stephen saying with us, of course, he's with the uh, a School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Dr. Singh, let me bring in my colleague, Pim Fox. Well, uh, Pim? Uh, Dr. Singh, I-, I was wondering if you could offer your thoughts about what are some of the assumptions and the misconceptions that particularly investors or even policymakers in the United States have about China they look at it as something monolithic, 
and they may not even speak the language or know the culture. Well, China is not monolithic. monolithic. Um, at the moment, it may largely speak with one voice because basically Xi Jinping doesn't want alternative voices to be heard. It doesn't mean there are no other voices. Even in the current situation, with the, uh, um, with the way how Xi Jinping has to manage the uh, two steps, uh, confirmation of his intentions to stay in office and stay in power for a very long time, it shows that he is still facing obstacles. He could not uh, have both at the 19th Party Congress back in October. He had to deny somebody becoming his successor in the 19th Congress and wait for another four months before he could uh, ask the party and the country to approve the prospect for him to stay on as a state president. I mean, that shows that he is not completely, absolutely uh, 100% in control, and there are other voices, but other voices will not come out unless and until Xi Jinping gets into serious problems, perhaps with the economy in China in serious trouble. What do we overestimate and underestimate when we think of the power of President Xi Jinping? I think we would overestimate if we try to compare Xi Jinping with Mao Zedong. Uh, Xi Jinping is not a Maoist, and he is not trying to restore Maoist totalitarianism. But he is a very uh, strong and devoted Leninist. A Leninist is somebody who believes in the Communist Party, who uses the Communist Party as the main instrument for controlling well, everything. Are there any Gorbachevs out there in China? There is no Gorbachev in, on the horizon in China. And in fact, in 2012, when Xi Jinping became leader, the first major announcement he made was that under his watch, China, the Communist Party of China, will not make the mistake of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and allow a figure like Gorbachev to emerge. He will squash him the minute he sees um, such a figure emerging. Professor Tseng, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it. Steve Tseng with us, folks. And, of course, this will lead our podcast uh, this morning in a hugely eventful day. He is with the School of Oriental and African Studies, the University of London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.